Good morning. We are continuing our parable study. This morning's we're coming to my favorite parable. I think maybe for many of you it'll be your favorite parable as well. The parable that's often been called the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, found in Luke 15, verses 11 to the end of the chapter. Uh, you might notice the title. We have a letter S at the end, parable of the prodigal sons. Um, prodigal means lavish. And so obviously the younger brother in our par- parable is, is going to go off and we're going to see him spend a lot of money lavishly. But we will find out that the, the older brother has similar longings, just hidden. So we're going to process that together. And we're going to find, as we've been finding with all of Jesus' parables, he, he brings eye-opening teaching just that can knock you out, upside the face. Uh, what we're going to notice is this younger brother's sin is so obvious. My goal, yes, some of us might struggle with younger brother sins, but my goal this morning will be for us to lean in more on how we might be more like the older brother. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. Please join me by reading along. We're going to start with chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to bypass two shorter parables, although I I will reference them and come into chapter uh, 15, verse 11. Also, this is part one. So this morning we're going to do a bit of an overview, and then next week we'll dive in on a few of the key themes. So join with me in reading. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 11, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs eat, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, He heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. 
But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. But you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when, the son, when, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we praise you for this parable. We confess. We confess that sometimes we act like we get it. Oh, I've heard this story or I've read the book or I've listened about this. We've become hardened. But this very morning, I pray, Holy Spirit, that no matter how many times we've encountered this story, that you would open our eyes freshly to the beauty of your gospel, to the offering of knowing you and having an intimate relationship with you, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Part of growing in your discipleship, part of, you know, when you've turned the corner and you want to know the Lord and walk with the Lord and walk in his scriptures, one of the hopes we have here at Grace would be that you would begin to see the Bible as one major story. Yes, we have texts that we read and study by themselves, but they all plug in to this larger story. Um, and we, we have this a catechism. I don't know how many of you are aware of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We highly recommend it. But the very first question and answer is, what is the chief end of man? That is, what is man and woman, what are we as humans supposed to do? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. There is your meta-narrative, your arc. And we know that at the very beginning of that process, right after creation, not long later, mankind fell. And we know that the rest of the story of the Bible is aiming at the redemption of man and that all of those that are gods would come back in and worship him and know him and have intimacy. Yet, what we have in our fallenness, whether you're a non-Christian or you're a Christian, but you still, we all as Christians even still have the flesh, is we have these longings. And they're designed to be aimed at God. They're, they're designed to be found and fulfilled by God alone. But what happens is in our fallenness, our longings are aimed at the wrong things. And these two brothers had longings. There was something right in front of them. And they were missing it all along. So I hope this morning we'll see that even though sometimes the story, sometimes the message, sometimes the gospel sounds maybe like you've heard it before. It might just be right in front of you all this time. It's everything you've ever wanted. What we're going to find this morning. So I want to read the quote before I say the, the point of our discussion. Right on the very front. It's one of my favorite quotes by Augustine. He says, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. And our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So what we're going to see this morning is that the secret, you know, Jesus is telling us these secrets to the kingdom. Here's, he's going to give you the main secret this morning. And the main secret is this. Because we were made to dwell with our heavenly father, all of our longings are truly met in him. Now, I expect you to doubt me. I expect you to kind of you know, wonder, is that true? Or maybe you intellectually assent to that. 
But let's really dive into this story and see if it's possible that maybe we're bypassing him and going after the wrong thing. So two broad points this morning. One is the sins that keep us from the Father. And then the second point would be the safety of going home to the Father. So let's start with the sins. So again, we use that word in here. You don't hear it as much in culture, but it is in our passage, especially in verse 1. Where, where Luke tells us now the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to him, that is to Jesus. What is sin? The shorter catechism, again, we just quoted question and answer one. Question and answer 14. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It's a mouthful. Basically, not doing God's law. That's what sin is. But I want to say that though that's what particular outward manifestations of sin is, what we are wanting to do is dive deeper and find out what's happening underneath the surface of these two brothers. So a quote by Richard Lovelace on sin where he says, listen, it's more than conscious or even unconscious violations of the law, which we just looked at. It is that, but it's more. It's an organic network of compulsive attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors deeply rooted Listen to this, in your alienation from God. These two brothers in this parable we're going to see, both were equally alienated from the father. They just went about it differently. So we're going to look first at the younger brother's sins. Um, we see it right away. Verse 11, Jesus starts this parable. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. You don't have to be a student of that culture to know. That was a huge insult. In fact, uh, most would argue two things. One, there's no record of this. Like you can't find a record of a son in Middle Eastern culture in that era asking the father for their inheritance. And the reason is they'd probably be executed. Like it was a big deal to ask for that. And so, and secondly, and, and as importantly, it's because it's basically saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance and start living the life I want to lead. But even more than that, he doesn't just want the father to be gone. He wants to leave behind the village. That's a huge thing in that culture. No one just leaves the village behind and goes out on their own forever. Yet that's what he wants to do. So at its core, the younger brother's sin is just straight up rebellion. Okay? Now I do want to say this before we move to the older brother's sin. Oftentimes, I think when we think of younger brother sins, we think of things that are harmful to us, things that, you know, make you look like an outcast in your, in your situation. But the truth is, you have to imagine initially, this younger brother probably looked really awesome. Like when he showed up to that far country, he probably had the nicest penthouse. He threw the best parties. Imagine Gatsby, you know. He's got everything going on. That was the party you wanted to be invited to. So when we think of younger brother's sins, it's not just everyone else would think what you're doing is crazy, okay? It's rebellion, but it's also oftentimes it might look pretty awesome to the culture around you, depending on how you do it. M. Scott Peck has a book called The Road Less Traveled, and in, he's a psychiatrist. And in that, at the very beginning, he says he's dealt with all sorts of patients, and he whittles them down into two categories. And he says, I have those that struggle with self-contempt. And that self-contempt drives all their neuroses. That's what psychiatrists call problems. 
And then the other group are those that have others' contempt. That is, all their problems are blamed on other people. He says, the first I can work with. The second are a lot harder to see much help with. And so as we're looking at these sins of the younger brother and we're about to transition to the older brother, keep in mind that the younger brother probably always knew I've, I've left home. He always probably was aware of his contempt. He probably even blames himself once the famine comes, rightly. Whereas the older brother never probably looked at his own sin and blamed himself for the problems in his life. Part of being an older brother in this, in this idea is you're blaming other people for your problems. So let's look at his issue. Um, first of all, he comes up right at the very beginning. There was a man that had two sons. That's really all you seemingly hear of him until verse 25 when he comes back from the field. But notice it's interesting when the, fa- when the son asks the father for the inheritance, Jesus says, and he, the father, divided his property between them. So the older brother is getting his half of the property in some way, maybe at least in deed. He didn't have the liquidity that the younger brother was able to get. But nonetheless, he wanted it. He was kind of a participant in this entire charade. Um, But more than that, I think the biggest thing we need to understand is that Jesus is talking to whom? You remember chapter 15, verses 1 and 2? What's, What's prompting this parable? It says, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Grumbled. Older brothers grumble. Now that word might, you might think about if you, as you've read the, the, the Bible in Exodus, when the people are leaving Egypt and God's rescuing them, their sin pattern over and over is to grumble, to complain. You know, God, we had it so much better. What did you bring us out here to die in the desert? We had it way better back in Egypt and they, they falsely remember how horrible Egypt was. We grumble. So my question is this, where do you grumble? Where are you others contempt? So often it's tempting to think in terms of like, I'm either this or I'm, I'm, I'm that brother. And I would like to press us to say we're all a little of both. I mean, the moments where you're just doing something you know is wrong, recklessly in a sense, you're being the younger brother in that moment. You're just doing it. Right? And you're praying, or maybe you're not praying, that, that you don't have such harm that you can't repair and and ask the Lord to forgive you. And that's critical. Like, that is a bad place to be. I just want you to know that in verse 1, those people were coming to Jesus. Please hear that. This parable is told in the context of those people, the younger brothers, coming to Jesus. It's the older brothers who are kind of like, I don't know. I don't think I need him. And they're grumbling. He's too kind. He's too forgiving. I would add, um, when I was in seminary, I got to hear Tim Keller come and preach. And I don't remember anything at all. I'll be honest. I don't remember anything but one little moment. I'm on the front row about where Angie was. Here's Tim Keller in our little chapel in St. Louis. And he's trying to catch his words. And finally, he just goes like this. He leans forward and goes, stop sneering. I don't know that. Sneering. Do you sneer? Yes. Okay, so let's just bring this to our current situation. We just had an election. Does anyone, I don't know if you remember this, but on Tuesday, was November 3rd, there was this election. Now, 
we're not supposed to talk about politics from the pulpit, right? Except, unfortunately, everything's politics. So what do you talk about? I'm not going to talk about politics. I'm going to simply say this. You are free to support either candidate. You are not free to hate the people who support the other candidate. You are free to say, I have this political view, if it's biblical. Now, those are debatable things. But where we slip into the older brother is when we say, not only do I have this in mind, but if you went for the other person, you are scum. You're as bad as that person. And all of their ideologies and all of their thoughts and all their behaviors. And what we're doing, and you're seeing this on, on social media and even in person, is you're becoming the older brother. Just because you're not, it, it's, the classic term is ad hominem. You're not attacking positions anymore. You're attacking people. Stop sneering. Stop grumbling. Right? Christians are not to grumble and to sneer. They're to, you have this opportunity to vote or to have a position on any number of issues, but not to hate the people who hold the other positions. And by the way, remember the older brothers are correct. So if your argument is, but what if I'm right and they're wrong? Exactly. The older, the, the Pharisees and the scribes were correct. The older brother in this passage was right. You shouldn't leave and take half the inheritance and squander that. You should never do that. So again, whatever your position is, you can feel right about it. You just can't then carry it out against the other person as if they're the scum and you want nothing to do with them and your world would be a better place if that part of the colored map would just be gone. If we could just get rid of that color. How many of you thought that? A lot of us do. You are in rebellion. Why? The similarities, Kenneth Bailey, one of the better commentaries on this prodigal son says this, Jesus is discussing two types of men. One is lawless without the law, the younger brother, and one is lawless within the law. Both rebel, both break the father's heart, and both end up in a far country. One's physically in a far country, one's spiritually in a far country. Now, I don't want to give the younger brother a pass, but I will say this. Um, the fact that he asks for this inheritance is also possibly driven by his lack of trust in the older brother. You remember the parable of the rich fool? I don't know if you remember the sermon from that or if, you've just, if you can remember reading it. What prompts that parable is when someone from the crowd says, tell my brother to divide the inheritance. And what's happening is Jesus is hearing this, like, breach, right? This thing that should never happen. We should be able to trust that if the father dies and the older brother gets the inheritance, the younger brother should never fear that they're going to receive it. They should trust that they will receive it. So that's the sins in this passage. There's a million sins we can talk about, but the one I just want to hone in on, because I think it's so prevalent in our culture, is that we grumble against other people. We we slander, we gossip, we talk about them, right? But what are we after when we do that? There's, a, there's something about complaining about someone else that feels so good. You all feel it? Let's just be honest. Like, we wouldn't do it if it didn't feel good. What's it doing for you? It's making you feel safe. If I can say what's wrong with them, then I'm part of a tribe, and I feel like we have a safety net around us. Does that make sense? So there's this tribalization. It's a, 
It's what you see in Babel when the languages are confused. The groups that speak the same language and feel the same, you know, they all cluster up in safety. Right? But that's what the gospel does. The gospel drives us in a different direction. So I want to say that I want to move to number two by saying this. You and I are sinning when our hearts are longing for safety, but we're going after other things for that safety. Their young son wants to go to a far country. The older brother is going to just try to be obedient and bide his time, and eventually he'll have the money. But what we're called to do is find safety, point number two, in the presence of the Father. This is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. The Bible begins with the Trinity. Okay? God says, let us, that's plural, make man in our image. And what we have in the Trinity is this perfect unity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And, and they have perfect connectivity, perfect unity. And then they say, let us make man in our image whose very DNA is designed to be connected to the Father. So when I use the word safety, think in terms of going home. Think in terms of like where you are fully known and fully loved. Right, true safety is more than just simply Mark safe after like a fire, you know, there's a forest fire in your region and you go to Facebook and say, Mark safe. Okay, that's true. But it's much more. It's, it's a full flourishing. Where is that in our passage? Um, when the younger brother returns and he's beginning to repent, and by the way, next week we're going to talk about grace and repentance and joy. So some of the best parts of this passage are coming next week. But when he returns... This, the dad interrupts him before he can actually say, here's a preview for next week. Before he can even say, make me one of your hired servants. The father interrupts him, kisses him, embraces him, and, and begins to go into action of loving him. And notice what he explains in verse 24. This my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And here's how the servant heard that who tells the older brother what had happened. When you drop down a few verses and the older brother's trying to find out what's going on, he says, your brother's come, your father's killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. There's this sense in which safety is home. When this younger brother uh, is in the far country and he's starving, he thinks of home. Certainly, back there, there's something going on where I could go there and be fed and be nourished, even as a hired servant. Uh, my goal right now is for you to begin to process this. Do you feel your longings? When I was in high school, I don't know why, and I mean, you can talk about it later, but I got into this series of multi-level marketing things. You know, like you go to these meetings someone invites you to, and they're going to tell you how downline works, and, and I mean, those are fine if you're in those great. Back then, it was just what I remember the most was it wasn't what the product or service was, but it was about how you made money and what they got you with. And what often got me was this thought of like, resi you know, residual income. You cannot, you can, you're just, you're safe. It's like this sense of just how amazing would it be to not have to wake up and wonder where my food was coming from, where my resources were coming from. And that would often catch you, right? Multi-level marketers are brilliant. They know how to get you. We want that. You long for something it's hard to even put a name to, right? There's this deep longing. And in our passage, both brothers are, in essence, going to a faraway country when right before them, in the person of their father, 
is the far-off country. He's the one who can meet your deepest longings. Most of you, many of you have heard the quote, but I'm going to read it from Lewis from his essay on the weight of glory. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take out your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia or romanticism or adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversations, the mention of it becomes imminent. We grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that we have never seen. It's never appeared in our experience. Yet we cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Are you following what Lewis is saying there? You have something, every one of you, in your heart that's longing. And it feels so intimate, you don't even want to name it. Do you feel that? Every sin you commit is because you're trying to go after something to scratch that itch. Right? That's where sins are coming from. Everything we do when we rebel from the Father is we're taking that, that DNA we've been given and we're aiming it at all the wrong things. And what, what Jesus is telling us in this parable is come home. Come to the Father and that will be met. Jonathan Edwards calls this affections, religious affections. What he says is in his book on religious affections is that in our source, in our heart, we have what are called affections that crave, that's what gets human beings moving, and religious affections, the only kind you should have, are doing everything aimed at the Father. And his point would be that if you didn't have affections, you wouldn't get up in the morning. Because we think we live logically. I need to get up to earn money, to pass a test, to, you know, whatever. And that's not true. There's something in our bodies that's driving us, that's hungering for all these things that can only be met in Jesus. Which brings us to our quote again from Augustine. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. So, what does this look like? In 1 Corinthians, you have this letter from Paul written to this crazy group of people where I think you could argue are both younger and older brothers. Like, they're younger and they're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. You read the whole book of 1 Corinthians, you're kind of like, what are you all doing out there? It's crazy. Read it. But yet at the very beginning, we're finding out that they have these divisions, this kind of older brother mentality. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. That's Peter. Some even follow Jesus, which you think would be the right group, but even they're wrong because it's contentious. They're, they're tribalizing. They're deciding for themselves who they are, and they're not, they're not walking with the church. And so what does Paul do? He goes to this beautiful, long picture, first sec, chapter 1 and 2, and then three, he says, you are the temple. Don't you know? And he says in verse 21, all things are yours. He's kind of cutting to the chase. He's like, I know what's going on. You have these longings and you can't fill them and you're aiming. All things are yours. 
That's exactly what the father tells this oldest brother. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Do you feel that way? That is the offer of the gospel. Now, I want to remind us again that at the very beginning of chapter 15, we have these two groups. We have the tax collectors and the sinners who are coming to Jesus. They are aware of their sin. They are wanting redemption. And then you have these grumbling Pharisees and scribes. And so Jesus tells these other two parables first. The first one is the 99 sheep are left behind because the one's lost. So the shepherd goes and finds the one. The second one is about a coin that gets lost and a woman, I mean, just basically tears the house to shreds to find that one coin. So it's about seeking lost things. And you come to our parable and all of a sudden we're confronted with this young brother that's just astoundingly sinful. And then you find this older brother who equally rebels. By the way, he confronts his dad in public. That is another action worthy of execution. He should have been like, yes, sir, I'm coming in. I'm doing my duty. No, he rebels. But the ending is missing. He, we don't know. What does he do? Does he go in? Does he not go in? And I think Jesus, who's telling this story, relates in a way with the older brother in this sense. He is the perfect older brother. You turn into Philippians, and you see in chapter 2, Paul is saying, let me just turn to it to review the verses as we, as we come to our conclusion. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to drop down. Verse 14, do all things, listen to these words, without grumbling, without disputing. His concern for the Philippian church was that they were becoming older brothers. They're going to become people who grumble and dispute and have fractions. Just before that, he has said, have this mindset among you, the mind of Jesus, who, though he's God, doesn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, his godness drives him to earth. He becomes made, you know, he comes in the form of a man, uh, becomes a man. He empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Have you ever heard that verse? Do you think that means that one day, someday, Jesus is going to appear and people are going to have to go around and say, you should get on your knees. You know what you need to be doing, getting on your knees? No. You're going to be compelled. He is so glorious. I don't know what unbelievers are. Are they doing it too? I don't know. But people are dropping to their knees and they're confessing, you are Lord. He is glorious. He is the older brother that went and found you. So who are we in this story? We're, we're, we struggle with older brother's sins, but we have to identify with the younger brother and notice that the way it could have been told is Jesus comes walking back with you. He's the older brother. He goes and finds you like the sheep and like the coin and says, let's go. I see you're starving. Your father has a place for you. 
and the father sees the older brother and you coming, and he runs to you. He's not like, okay, here comes Jesus doing what Jesus does. And then you get to him, and he goes, okay, I don't like you, but I like your brother, so I'll let you back. No, he runs, and he kisses you on your cheek, and he says, welcome home. And you say this, I want to celebrate, and I want to have a party, but there's more other brothers that are lost. Let's go find them. I know where they are. Are you drawn to younger brothers? Are you drawn to people that are different from you, politically, racially, socially? Because if you're not, then you have to ask yourself, have I truly been rescued by Jesus, the true older brother? And if you have been rescued by Jesus, the true older brother, and that's not your heartbeat, then repent. Return again. Confess, this is one of the first, maybe only parables I can think of, I haven't done a survey, where Jesus is actually reaching the crowd he often harps on. He's actually reaching out to these older brothers. He's saying, I've got a gospel message for you. You were rescued so that you can now rescue others. That's the beginning. Next week we'll look a little bit more closely at that. But my prayer for all of us today is that we would notice our grumblings, notice what we're really longing for, and then begin to pray that we would find the Father to be the only source for that longing. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you that you are the perfect older brother, that you came to earth to find us, to seek us, to save us, to bring us back to safety. Lord, we confess that when we're not home, we're in danger. Yet we also confess, Father, we're so drawn to places that seem like they might meet our deepest longings. Teach us to know on the outset that they won't. Teach us to identify those places that we're pursuing that will actually break us and bring us to starvation. Teach us to hate the older brother's sins of slander and gossip and grumbling and complaining. Teach us to love, especially those that are different from us, because we were one of them. In your name we pray. Amen.